I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc. Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. 
And you can find even more information on newcalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran, volunteer, and career firefighter Chris Moore. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, some career calls, his powerful mental health story, save a warrior, brothers helping brothers, leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Moore. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start firstly to say thank you to um, Jim for bringing us together in Ohio for the Brothers Helping Brothers Conference. And secondly, I want to welcome you personally to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, Amazing conference where we finally got to have our paths crossed in Ohio. And it was a pleasure meeting you and spending a few days together with you and um getting to, to see the man behind the podcast and everything that you're, you're doing. So um, that was such an honor and it's a huge honor to be a part of your podcast right now. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was a, such a powerful conference too. I mean, to, there was a lot of people that I interviewed that I hadn't met um, some local guys that I already had. So for example, interviewing Raul and Jeff and their perspective on the, the pulse shoot in live was was incredible, so powerful. But then also meeting Ben and some of the other guys I had on the show and watching their presentations and uh, you know the the love in that conference space was incredible. It was the people that really understood vulnerability, but also that brotherhood and sisterhood piece. So it it reignited my fire and a belief that that's what the fire service really is. Yeah, me too. So amazing conference for anybody who hasn't been out there to the. Uh... The Brothers Helping Brothers Conference in, uh, what do they call it, Exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio. (laughs) Uh, If you ever get a chance, it's uh, every year in October, definitely get out there and check them out. They're doing great things. Those guys that put that on truly have that servant's heart, and they want to give back um, to the the brother and sisterhood of the, the fire service and public safety. Absolutely. Well, I know you're not in Ohio now, so where are we finding you today? Uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. So probably uh, takes me about 17 minutes to do the math to um, get from my door to the beach. I was just there earlier today. That's that's my happy place. It's cold here. Um, not as warm as where you're at down in Florida, but um, I think today we're right around 40 degrees. So it's a little, little nippy down at the, the ocean front, but um, regardless, it's still my happy place. I like to go there and, and do self-care, meditation, any chance that I get get to uh, partake in that. 
So many of the people that have come on the show that have been attached to Virginia Beach are wearing a trident. So obviously there's a, a strong SEAL community there and even DevGrew. So with you working in the fire service, have you had any interaction with that community in general and, and or your local law enforcement agency? Oh, yeah, yeah. We um, uh, Lots of interactions. It's kind of hard to go anywhere in this area, even as a civilian, without interacting with somebody in the, the military or law enforcement and even the, um, the SEAL teams and dev group. But, um, yeah, we, we have um, lots of positive interactions all around. Um, just a, a, a fellowship and a, the, the brotherhood, the camaraderie um, with them as, as well. So. Well, this would be a good question to ask you. I was blown away as I started, you know, on uh, what's the right word, accumulating episodes and getting more and more conversations with people, how high the special operations, special forces communities hold us, the first responders. And it makes perfect sense. While they're deployed, we are protecting their loved ones. Um, but you literally are, are living side by side with some of these. So, so have you had any of those kind of conversations or perceptions? Because the reason why I think it's so important is not for us to beat our chest, but to then parallel resources, you know, training, fitness requirements, et cetera, with those men in this case um, who hold us to the same position as themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you You hit the nail on the head. Uh, those guys, as badass as they are, super, super humble in what they do. And I can't thank the, I, I put the military up here, um, and I can't thank them enough for everything that they do. But the, the military that I've interacted with um, across the board, but since we're talking about special forces, the, the SEALs that I've interacted with and everything, um, they do hold us in in very high standards for the exact reasons that you said, because we're holding the fort down here while they're taking care of business overseas, uh, whether it be Africa or the Middle East or Afghanistan, whatever. Um, but to me, my, my response always to, to these guys is um, they afford us the luxury to do what we do here by them doing what they're doing over there. Um, they're, they're securing, defending and securing our, our freedom. And without that, we, we couldn't be on this podcast right now. We couldn't be on the, the rigs or the patrol cars or whatever it may be. So um, to me, they're, they're well above, but they, they, they don't accept that from me <laughs> uh, because like I said, they're, they're so humble, even as, as badass as they are. And for those of you out there who have never met, um, are any of our elite special forces. Um, it, it seems like a lot of people think that they are um, um, kind of like us. Um, people think we're superheroes, that we have an S on our chest or, or whatever. And that's that's just not the case. I mean, we are all just everyday um, men and women who are, are, are doing an exceptional job at what we do. Um, providing a service to our communities and our country. And so it's it's really cool, man, just to uh, to sit down and and have a regular conversation with these guys. What I found is that they 
because again, it's it's you know, like I says, it's not apples to apples. Every each of us do our profession, and we're always in awe of other professions that do it at such a high level. And I think the the closest comparison I can think of is wildland and and structural. Like the wildland firefighters, you you guys are crazy running into a burning building. Why would you do that? And we're like you 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 stand in the middle of burning mountains with a shovel, <laughs> you know. So I think there is that admiration, but where the value is, apart from that mutual respect is okay which of these organizations are doing it best okay the seals and you know some of the other communities they get good training they get everything from you know the mental health and and the the resilience to the the fitness training and nutrition to the you know the knowledge sharing with with special forces from other countries and then you side by side compare the thing that i know which is the fire service there are some departments that do that very well but there's a lot where we're asking men and women to do so much with so little, which is absolutely the polar opposite of how a lot of the special operations communities are treated. Yeah, Rick, that's very um, spot on analogy of that right there. Um, there there's so many uh, organizations and departments that are ahead of their time. They are they're cutting edge and they're they're doing all the right things. Then you have another tier of organizations and departments that they say the right thing, but they don't always do the right thing. And then you have that bottom tier that just they they don't put all of the pieces of the puzzle together and put out the, I guess, the, the best possible product, if you want to call us a product, but the, the best possible scenario for success in the field, but at home also for their members. Um, we we always talk about ourselves in within this community as as being a family, family oriented, family geared, and, and everything. And kudos to the departments that truly follow through with that. But um, the the ones that don't, Godspeed to them. I hope that they 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 pick it up and elevate their game and start putting that total package together to take care of their members, not only while they're on that 24-hour shift or um, getting back to our military as well, while they're deployed and um, and everything, but when everybody is back at home and you're, you're off shift with your family, uh, we need departments to take care of those members at that time as well. Which work week schedule do you guys have where you work? Oh man, that's a bad question. I'm going to confuse the hell out of you and uh, everybody out there listening. So, um, 56 hour work week, but we're on, it's called a 21 day cycle. Everywhere I go, people ask me that question. When I start explaining it, their mind is just blown. So they're 24 hour shifts. It starts on a Tuesday. So we go, um, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Monday. So it's every other day for roughly a week. Then we get off that Tuesday morning. We're off Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We come back and work Friday. And then we work Sunday. We're off for two days. We work Wednesday, and then we have a five-day break. And that'll bring us back to a Tuesday again, and it starts all over. Well, the most important thing you said was 56-hour work week. Yeah, yeah. So, because this is, Anaheim was one-on-one off for four, four shifts, and then it was a four or a six after. So that's probably the closest thing that I've heard to what you're doing. But that 24 on 24 off was brutal for that that tour. And this is uh, I've done a call to action to you know the fire service in general. And the preface is this, 
we have so much courage operationally. Like I've, I've, I can't even recall really an event where someone refused to go into a fire or whatever because they were, you know, scared. I won't use the word coward, but they were scared. They were ill prepared, whatever it was. So we're, you know, a pretty courageous bunch overall operationally. But the number of times I've heard, oh, you'll never change. You'll never change that. Oh, they'll, they'll never go for that. And I realized that we're courageous in uniform, but absolutely cowards when it comes to advocating for our own health, mental health, physical health, and relationships at home. So this is something that I, you know, I'm asking now, not just with the work week, because I've talked that subject to death. We all know now that the 2472 is probably what should be ultimately the industry standard to give our men and women the rest and recovery. And so now it's not, oh, what's the best? We know what the best is now. It's like, how do we make that happen? The money is there because it's a false economy, the way that we work. You save money if you actually have a healthier department. It's now a case of everyone from you know members to unions to chiefs to counties and cities to all have the courage to stand up and say, it's not working anymore. We need to change the way we're doing it. Yeah. Um, we actually... Um... You and I had a, a good portion of that conversation, and um, that that's definitely the, the best thing for the, the departments. Like you said, we have our one week of um, twenty four on, uh, twenty four off, and that's that's tough. And there there's still departments that do twenty four forty eights, and even those departments that that's tough when you only have two days because uh, the reality is uh, nobody's doing this job to get rich, <laughs> but uh, we do need the money and it, it doesn't necessarily support us with a, uh, in all municipalities where when we have a family or, or whatever. So, you know, most of us, we have part-time jobs. Uh, so it's not like you can get off from your 24 hour shift in the morning where you just got your butt handed to you. And you get to go home and catch up on the sleep. Most time people get off. Uh, they might go home and see their significant other or whoever for um, a few minutes. But then you got to get back off to, to work a second job doing landscaping or painting or whatever it may be. Um, so you're we're already behind the eight ball. Then we're coming home and we're just we're, we're beating ourselves up uh, more and more. Uh, because of these schedules like that. So yeah, the most ideal is to have that 72 hour break between shifts, do those, uh, the four shifts, uh, an A, B, C, and D shift and give your, your companies the, uh, I don't even want to call it a luxury, but more of, I guess the necessity of having that 72 hours off to recover. And sometimes some of us are our own worst enemies, though, uh, when it comes to this. We could give guys and girls that 72 hours, but what are they going to do? They're going to sign up and they're going to work overtime um, half of that time or work a part-time job all of that time or whatever. So uh, we really got to, if we're afforded that benefit of going to a schedule like that, we got to utilize it to our best ability for our mental health was well, education and it's also um the organizational side as well as staffing the department properly so you know one of the things that i've realized a lot of people and you've, you've been on longer than i have but when i tested about 20 years ago 
I was testing against a thousand certified candidates with resumes the size of a freaking yellow pages in, in California, for example. That's how the fire service should look. You know, it's a, it's a a job where you just want to take the top 10%. I'm not saying I was a top, but, you know, you, you vie to be that candidate that's worthy of that uniform. Um, and then that ethos stays through your department. And now we're on the other side, you know, where we've devolved as far as the, you know, the work week and uh, the amount of calls and the amount of things that we ask our responders to do now um, that we don't have that line outside the front anymore. So I, you know, my whole thing is if you put back the things that need to be there, and this is the irony is that we, we do believe that a 2472 would be a luxury. That's a 42 hour work week. Most civilians work 40 and they go to bed every night. There's nothing luxurious about it. You're trying to get back to at least their baseline. That's all you're asking. But you know, I think then you would have people vying for the department. All the seats would be full. So then you can take that out. There won't be the overtime to drag people into in the first. But there'd be an occasional overtime. Fine. You know, you work a shift once in a while. No one's going to have an issue with that. But then you want the extra money, as you touched on earlier. You hang drywall, you landscape, you paint walls, you do, you know, whatever. You start your, you have a side business, which is beautiful because then you can transition when you retire as well. Those are all great, but educating the people to understand that whatever you do on the side, make sure you're asleep in your own bed every night. That's that's the secret sauce. Yeah. And um, one of the terms I, I've heard uh, m- many years ago, I, I can't remember who it was to credit them properly. I'm sure they're probably a, a follower and listener of uh, James Gearing in your podcast, but um, is addicted to awake, and, and that's that's another thing. Also, even even if we we go with the the proper days off that we could uh, better help ourselves, we still need to educate ourselves better and our members as a whole. Um, just about any firehouse you go into any time of the day or night, there's a pot of coffee that's going in the kitchen. Um, I'm sure the, the same for um, police precincts and sheriff's offices, dispatch call centers, um, EMS. Uh, hell, my one of the fire stations that I was assigned to for quite a while, we had our own refrigerator designated. It was just monster energy drinks that we would sell. And we're, we're hurting. We're our own um, best friend, but we're also our own worst enemy when it comes to a lot of the stuff. And just like you said, the, the education, um, our, our administration educating them to implement a lot of the things in our city councils, but it's got to trickle down and we got to educate the members and do the best things for ourselves. If we have people willing to work with us and help us out and accommodate us. We need to work on all of the other things. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I completely cut caffeine out of my life. I stay away from caffeine and I thought that was going to be a, a super hard task to do. Um, it, it really wasn't. And I tell you my, just from doing that in the beginning, my sleep improved tremendously um, from cutting that out. Since then, I have learned and, and done other things to assist with my sleep as well. But um, that's one of the the key things right there is just cutting a lot of that stuff out. 
Well, I'm sitting here drinking a cup of coffee, so I'm not completely caffeine free. But what I've noticed is I've, I've again, abstained from alcohol since uh, God, the 29th or 30th, I think it was. Um, and so I'm in another period now of of not drinking because for me, I mean, there's there's so many negatives, as I've said on here before. I've never woken up wishing I had drank the night before, but the <laughs> yeah. converse is very true, you know? So, and I'm not binge drinking. I'm not trying to, you know, drown out memories, anything like that. It's more habitual, cultural, et cetera, but I would lean into it as a, you know, really awful decompressor. You know, just it's, it's not, it does the opposite. But what I found is when I don't drink, I don't drink as much coffee because the coffee for me was trying to offset the fogginess from the drinking the night before. Yeah, yeah, me too. And that's another thing that we haven't um, until recently at the Ohio conference back in October, the first time that I've ever seen a presenter actually speak out about alcohol and its effects on people and how we accept it as part of our culture. Uh, you go to a a funeral. Oh, let's raise a glass to so-and-so. And you go to a, a union meeting. You're like, hey, after the meeting, let's let's have some beers or whatever, or a charity fundraiser, golf tournament, or whatever. It's we we tend to center it all around drinking. It's become a a major part, and we need to get away from that. And who it was who who said that, I know you probably know, but uh since you were there. But it was it was Brendan, um, Brendan McDonough, Donut, and um, I applaud him um, one thousand percent for being the the first person. I'm not saying people haven't done that before, but he's the first one in all the conferences I've ever been a part of and, and attended. He's the first person I've ever seen speak out about that, and I, I think we need more awareness and attention. And I'm not trying to be just like I'm sure you're not Debbie Downer and say, no, don't ever drink or, or whatever. But we just need to try and um, make it where we don't rely on it or um, have it be as much of the, the culture. It, it shouldn't be a, a cultural, culturally significant thing for us. It can be part of uh, events and, and things like that, but it shouldn't be relied on and, and dependent on. I had a guest on here who was recommended by a friend of mine, um, and he wrote a book called The Introvert's Edge. And it was fascinating because immediately it, it, it kind of resonated with me. The definition of an introvert or an extrovert is basically where you get your energy from. So you can be totally comfortable in a crowded room, but you level up by, you know, then when you go home to your family, your dog, whatever it is, the intimate settings, then you're probably an introvert. You know, if you get your power, if you level up in a crowd, which I think is very, very few people, to be honest, then you're truly an extrovert. And I, I was like, oh, shit, because I've always been OK in in groups, but I'm the guy that you'll turn around and go, you know, where the fuck did James go? It's like, I just, you know, all right, peace. I'm out. <laughs> I just hit that hit that level. And then, you know, I'm going to want to go to a busy party and I'll be sitting out the back you know, on, on, on the garden wall or something, not because any other reason than that's just, I'm happier out there. Um, but then what it made me realize if so many of us are introverts, alcohol is a social lubricant because we have this facade that everyone else is the center of the party. And we're the one that's like, what's wrong with me? 
So this, you think about pregame, how many times did you go out and you drank before you even went out to feel comfortable being out? I mean, it's lunacy when you think about it, but when you start deconstructing that before we ever even became firefighters for us that got in a little bit later, you know, that that's the other thing that we're fighting is this, this, uh, like I said, this fallacy that other people can just slip into this social space and be fine. And most of us can't. Most of us drink so that we can even get to that point where we're comfortable in crowds. Yeah, yeah, that's um, definitely a, a great way to look at it. I never thought about the, the whole introvert, extrovert, and and everything where it pertains to alcohol. And many of us feel like we we need that to that liquid courage to uh, get up and be more social or, or whatever. And, um, I still partake, but I partake responsibly and it's, um, very, um, kind of few and far between. Um, whereas in the past I, I did do a lot of, um, um, drinking where I felt like I had to, to be social. I had to get, as you described it, that, uh, that social lubricant and uh, pre-game and um, I felt like it was it was a need but since I have cut back and um, everything and just being more in the present and in tune with who I'm self uh, who I am myself um, I, I feel I, I really I don't need it anymore to um, be able to carry on a um, a good conversation, uh, a well-educated conversation. Um, I can just be be me. I'm not trying to, or no longer am I trying to impress other people. I don't need to. If somebody just um, feels like they need to do this to impress people or do that to impress somebody, then they're they're doing things for the wrong reason. All I have to do. Um, I want to serve other people, but at the end of the day is I need to take care of Chris Moore and do what serves Chris Moore the best and properly. And um, I'm happy with that. If I do something that pisses James Gehring off or any of his listeners or um, just people in general, um, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm living my best life now. And it doesn't always have to include that social lubricant. So what you're saying is you wouldn't do a keg stand pussy. Am I getting that right? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, speaking of Chris Moore, let's start at the very beginning of your timeline so we can learn about your journey into the fire service. So tell me where you were born. And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born and raised right here in um, the, the Virginia Beach area. And, um, it'll be almost 51 years ago. Uh, I was born here. Um, my father, he was a Vietnam veteran in the, the Marine Corps and went over and I believe he did, uh, he did two tours in Vietnam and he came back and he joined the, the local police department in the, the neighboring city of Norfolk, Virginia. And he served honorably there for over 20 years until he, he retired. He had, looking back on things now, a lot of post-traumatic stress. Didn't know anything about it at 
at that time frame, the the eighties and, and everything when I was a young um, young terror growing up. But now that I I'm more educated about it and the I guess globally we're more educated and um, have understanding of it. I, I see where a lot of that really affected my dad, not just the, the police department, but coming back from Vietnam and everything issues that he had. Um, he was a, uh, a great man, but coming from that older generation and especially, I guess the, the older military generation and Marine Corps, uh, he went to uh, boot, boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina. And back in those days, um, they could physically abuse you um, in boot camp. And he would occasionally talk about all that. And he became a, he was a strict disciplinarian. And um, it could, it was, it was tough at times. I had a, I had a good childhood, but had, had some issues related to a lot of that. My mother, she was, was working class family. She worked uh, over 40 hours a week. And I had a, um, or still have, an older brother. He's uh, a couple years older than me. So it was just um, him and I and our, uh, our folks growing up. Um, I remember my dad, he would take me to work with him. If he, I was home, we were out of school or whatever, he had to go to court. I remember him taking me to court. Um, I remember days when he had to patrol and he didn't have court. He would pick me up in his patrol car and uh, take me around with him. We'd go to the firehouses and police precincts, everything like that. And it was it was a really cool experience for a kid. You figure uh, a lot of kids, at least back in that time period, um, you would just idolize the, the firefighters, the law enforcement, everything like that. And uh, I would just, I was in awe of my old man, but then all of his, his friends at the police precinct and firehouses and everything. So um, initially, <laughs> even though I was in awe of all of that, I wanted to be, I think I was like six years old. I wanted to be a damn trash man. So I wanted to ride on, instead of riding on the tailboard of a fire engine like they did back then, I wanted to ride on a tailboard of a trash truck and um, do that. But as I got older and everything, not much older than that, probably about eight years old, I just knew I wanted to be a first responder. I wanted to emulate my old man and I wanted to give back to the community. I remember every morning or when he worked mornings, but at night, same thing every day when he was getting ready to go into work and just seeing the pride that he had putting that uniform on polishing his shoes. Um, at that point had the big thick patent leather belt and everything and having that, um, his utility belt all polished and shiny and just looking as squared away as could be. I was like, man, that's, that's my dad. That's my old man right there. And, um, I was just so proud of all that, and I knew I wanted to do it. Um, fortunately, as um, I graduated high school, and when I hit 20 years old, I scored high enough on the test where I didn't have to be a cop. 
I was able to be a firefighter. So, <laughs> so that's why I got into uh, firefighting instead of law enforcement. Um, in all seriousness, I just, I, I wanted to do more of the, uh, the, the fire side just because uh, I think we all know that both jobs are inherently dangerous. Uh, I didn't want to be shot at. Although firefighters nowadays can get shot at, stabbed like Ben or um, any other forms of assault that were just as dangerous. But um, I just wanted to do more positive um, stuff with the, the fireside and EMS. And um, at 20 years old, I started out uh, as a volunteer in the city of Virginia Beach. And I volunteered here for uh, seven years until I got hired by um, the neighboring city of Chesapeake and uh, the fire department there. And that's where I, I currently serve now. And um, currently uh, a captain have risen up through the ranks. I started out as a firefighter, got my paramedic and um, made lieutenant. And now I'm a captain. And I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that. The, the public safety was in my blood from, from day one. And um, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Although I wish I knew then a lot of the stuff that I know now and that we're, we're finding out about the, um, not just the fire service, but the public safety sector and uh, how things affect our, our mental health. So I would have done things. I still would have went with the career, but I would have done things a, a, a lot different. And it's the whole, we, we don't know what we don't know. My dad didn't know it. I, I didn't know it. So I, I currently, I have a, um, a son who just graduated, high, excuse me, high school last summer. And he's a young man now, 18 years old, trying to find his way in life. And I've, Never once tried to push anything on him. I didn't say, hey, you got to go into public safety and carry on our family legacy or anything like that. Um, but if he if he decides to to go that route, dad's definitely going to have a, a little sit down talk with him. And he's seen the effects that it's had on not just myself, but the whole family dynamic, because it doesn't just affect the first responder. It affects the entire family dynamic. Well, speaking of that, I want to go all the way back to your dad. I've had a few guests now that were Vietnam veterans and so conversely to the ticker tape parades of World War II that we romanticize about, even though now I just interviewed two World War II veterans the other day, that is a fallacy that they just rolled up their sleeves and went to work and were fine because they weren't. A lot of them were not fine. And you hear this now, granddad was, you know, often drinking, abusive, that kind of thing. And there's no disrespect to the individual. That's what happens when you come from the horrors of war with no real mental health conversations and you just thrust back into rebuilding your country. But when it comes to the Vietnam era, which I think is somewhat... Not It's not the same, but it's now paralleling a little bit more for our Afghan vets that suddenly we withdrew and they were left with that kind of, you know, legs from being cut under them. But the world, excuse me, the Vietnam veterans were literally spit on, pissed on. I mean, all these horrific stories that I've heard. 
what was his homecoming story? Did he ever talk to you about how he was received and, and how that impacted him? Exactly what you just said. The, what we hear about how everybody from that was perceived just um, negative. And it, it affected him tremendously. Um, and from, uh, I think that was probably, it, it might have started a little bit with Korea, but Vietnam definitely. And then uh, Iraq and Afghanistan now, everything has just been, and I'm not trying to transition um, all of this, but everything just gets politicized. It seems like Vietnam was like the turning point where things were starting to get politicized now and everything. We we don't think about our, our men and women who are over there doing the things. We just want to choose sides and right and wrong and everything like that. And regardless of which side that, that you're on, it, we need to, we, we didn't do it then and we're still not doing it now. We need to take care of our people. And he definitely, uh, none of them were taken care of. And it affected him tremendously. And even going back to how you, you spoke about World War II, and um, we, we have this fallacy that, like you said, the, the ticker tape parades and, and all that, did they have those? Sure, they did. But still, um, it wasn't... Um, things to necessarily fix their their mental health and their well-being and everything because they they got back maybe they had some kind of a parade they rolled their sleeves up they went to work the alcohol and everything was still there but if we re rewind even before that and this is where it's starting to show a pattern of almost like a well not almost but of a generational type trauma because you figure our, our vets that came back from World War II what were their fathers possibly in World War One, And um, it, it's just what people learn and people experience. And they were very young men, probably a lot of them in World War One and World War Two, and even partially in Vietnam, were going in before they were even 18 and uh, putting their lives on the line and defending our country and, and everything. So they come back from that. Well, they're passing it on to their the next generation, their children. And so when those children grow up, that's all they've ever known. So they're doing the same thing to their children. So eventually we need to figure out and learn more about the generational trauma. And we need to stop it with us. And I know I just took that completely around the, um, the room right there. You were just asking me one question about my dad coming back from Vietnam. But um, like I said, his his father was World War Two, and um, so it's it's definitely a difference in the way they came back and were perceived. But it's not too far off of a difference. We we, we tend to think that everything was glorified um, after World War Two, but that that just necessarily wasn't the the case there. And Vietnam was just. Um, from stories that I've been told from my my dad, it was just it was a horrible, horrible time to be coming back from horrible conditions 
and fighting and just we'll, we'll just say war. It, it was war. It was a conflict or war, whatever you want to call it. It was war. And uh, he was already um, like just about probably everybody else that was over there traumatized by a lot of the stuff that he was seen, uh, was exposed to and seen and did. And then you come back to that and it just, it doesn't help. You're, you're set up for, um, I don't necessarily want to say failure, but you're just not set up for success. And there were a lot of stories I, I didn't experience much of it, but I heard a lot in my, prior to me being born in early years of, of life, like my entire life, my dad never, he never ate rice after coming back from Vietnam. He did leading up to that, but just through marching through the rice paddies there in Vietnam, he, he wouldn't eat rice. Um, then the, the, the post-traumatic stress, and I guess that's probably a form of it right there, but um and this is kind of ironic because he ended up becoming a, a police officer with sirens and everything, but he would hear sirens when he first got back. I remember my, my mother sharing this with me and he would just like go into a, almost like a catatonic state or, or drop down. And um, just thinking that um, something is happening there, having flashbacks. And, but there was, there wasn't, places the the va wasn't set up to to help those guys hell it's really not set up to to help our current guys that well right now but um wasn't set up for for them back in the day or anything like that so um very sad very tragic and um kind of disgusting that stuff like that happened to our men and women who were over there doing something for us yeah, especially so many were drafted as well, whether you signed up or not, you know, I mean, you were over there doing doing something, wearing the uniform with your nation's flag on the shoulder. And this is this is why when I ask the members of the military, I always say, regardless of the politics that sent you there, let's talk about you know, the the atrocities and let's talk about the kindness and compassion because we don't get the soldier's perspective a lot of the time. Like, let's talk about what you actually did for this country. And that was what was, you know, lost. And I think one of the, if I remember rightly, Vietnam, I think was the first conflict where they actually had an embedded, you know, videographer. So they were actually getting news feeds back of what was really going on. So all of a sudden, and it's obviously worse now, like every man and his dog had an opinion. Um, but if you want our boys to come home and men and women to come home, then bring them home. But, you know, they're not the ones at fault for this. You know, it, it was, you know, the, the uh, North Vietnamese initiating these atrocities and then a decision for us to go, whether it was altruistic or more, you know, politically uh, minded as far as um, one of my guests was talking about, I forget which city it was now. I don't know if it was Saigon, but anyway, that was like the, the jewel in Southeast Asia politically if you if you own that then you own all the shipping routes and all those kind of things so whatever the reason that they found themselves there they were there wearing our flag so we have to support them whether it's afghanistan or vietnam or somalia wherever they're you know they're trying to do good those men and women in uniform apart from the anomalies are out there trying to serve so as you said we owe it to them to support them especially when they come home yeah right on <laughs> So you talked, you touched on, you know, that your dad struggled 
the multi-generational story is actually something I'm trying to write in my second book. Um, just trying to find the writer that exists somewhere in <laughs> this tiny brain of mine I'm struggling with at the moment. But it's so important. And and Jake, I will I will credit Jake from Save a Warrior, which we'll get to in a minute, for opening my eyes on the element of childhood trauma in PTSD or mental health challenges in in uniform professionals. So when you look back now, you know, as we all are starting to realize that before we ever put the uniform on as a big part of our mental health journey, when you look back now with the environment that you grew up in, are there elements that contributed to trauma that you found later in life? Yeah, and I know you said we're going to touch on it a little bit later um, when you reference Jake and um, the generational trauma, but things that I never realized because a lot of times things happen to us, even still as adults, but most notably as children, we push things down. We just uh, suppress things so deep. Uh, we think that they're, they're gone. But until, and I know this is so cliche, we start peeling back the proverbial layers of the onion. Um, you got to peel more than the first couple layers. And with, with Jake, one of the things that we've done and really helped me out was we pulled every freaking layer back until there was no onion left and exposed everything. And um, I thought that my childhood initially was perfect until we peeled that, lun that, that, lunion, that onion all the way to, to the core. And um, the the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences score, the, it's the 10 questions, yes or no, and you don't justify it. Um, I ended up finding out that I did have a lot of childhood trauma and issues. Um, I accepted them. I, I suppressed them, but I accepted that if I was in... By no means does this mean um, that I'm speaking disparaging words about my my parents or anything like that, uh, because they didn't know. They didn't know what they didn't know either, because that's why it's called generational. The same shit happened to them, and they did it to me, and it stops here, because now I know about it. I'm aware of it, but um, I just felt, okay, I did wrong. That's why I got hit. Um, I, I justified everything when I was a kid. And like I said, I suppressed it. And I, I truly believe I haven't seen any legit, actually not even legit, I haven't seen any true studies right now to support this other than just, um, I guess, more smaller, um, smaller studies or questionnaires or, or whatever. But many of our first responders and our military are going to have a higher ACEs score. And that's what led us to where we are right now, because we did have these adverse childhood experiences when we were young. And we felt like there was nobody there that could help us. And we wanted to be the rescuer, the 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 saver of people. When we got old enough, we wanted to get out of that bad. Like I said, my environment wasn't the worst. 
like I had still had a good childhood, but we wanted to get to better. And we didn't want what happened to us in certain instances and occasions to happen to other people. So that's why we turn 18, we join the military, we join the, the police department or the fire department or EMS. Um, I, I know there is a correlation around that. And I just want to see a very, maybe your book, I want to see a very large scale study. I've seen some smaller ones. And um, I'm pretty sure that this number is right. And you've probably heard it from, from Jake. I believe he said the, uh, like the average prison population, their score is a six. And from what I'm finding with, most first responders, just in small conversations and, and little things like that, the average score I'm finding on a first responder is right around a six also. And um, it's it's eye-opening. And I had never, until I met Jake Clark, have never heard of ACES. And um, I think that's something we really need to start looking into a lot more and addressing. You can uh, address um, if you have the courage, because that's that's another thing we'll have to talk about is having the, the courage to address our issues that we have from running these calls and, and seeing what we see and um, everything like that. You can address stuff like that all day long. And you can say that a lot of that causes you to um, self-medicate with alcohol, prescription drugs, um, uh, porn, whatever your internal drugstore for dopamine desires, um, and you you utilize to find that and open up that drugstore, um, you can blame it on that all day long. But I think we truly need to go back to the beginning, the first 18 years of life. And once you start addressing that, and not just addressing it and acknowledging it, but getting the help, the, the, the clinical help for it, then you can start moving on and doing other things for the, the rest of your, your life and your, your career and everything like that. And that's one thing that, that I've done is with, with therapy um, is... I started doing that. I've gotten away from therapy in the past, but I'm right back to it now. And I'll, I'll never stop going to therapy and just addressing anything. If, if I go to therapy, I, I do it every other week. I just went this morning. And if I don't have anything to talk about, <laughs> by all means, I'm just, I'll still get there. I'll pay my copay and we'll just sit down and we'll talk for an hour about the weather sports, whatever it may be. But um, yeah, I think it's it's very important that we address the, the generational aspect of it and what happened, potentially happened to uh, members of the um, first responder community in their childhood, their first 18 years of life without justifying anything. Either the shit happened to you or it didn't. Don't take blame or anything like that. I'll say, well, my dad did it to me because I was a little asshole or or whatever. If it happened, it happened. 
Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, firstly, it was interesting um, before I get into, I think, some of the reasons why there is a higher density of us with this element. How many times do you hear, I grew up in an environment and I knew it was either the military or prison? You know what I mean? The, they, they're oh, side by side in conversations, you know, especially if you grow up in a, in a poorer area or, or, or you know, just, just out rurally somewhere and you did find yourself with a bunch of friends. It's like, I was either going to end up the military prison or dead. That's, that's what you hear all the time. So therefore, there's a commonality and trauma there. But what I also realized, because after talking to Jake, I would open the door wider for the first part, you know, the, the zero to putting uniform on. And I started realizing, oh, my God, there's so much there. Never pushing someone in, just saying, you know, when you look back, you know, what do you, what do you see now? And so many. So observationally, almost 900 interviews now, I can tell you, hands down, because I'm not picking people because of trauma for this show. It's, you know, every man and his dog from models and dancers through to Navy SEALs and firefighters. Um, but and even like, you know, some people have come on to talk about strength and conditioning or some completely non-mental health conversation we find ourselves there you know dan john's a perfect example strength and conditioning guru his multi-generational trauma with his dad and his brother world war ii in vietnam took up more than half of the conversation before we even talked about barbells but what really makes me understand it is like you said that's there's that victim element that you want to be the protector but then there's also um the busyness which is why i think a lot of responders start to struggle around the 10 year mark when the job just isn't as exciting anymore because you've seen so much um there's that tribal element being part of something um so there's a lot of reasons why a lot of us find ourselves going into uniform because there it is somewhat the antidote to some of the struggles that we had but the problem is if you address it it becomes a superpower i truly believe that trauma becomes resilience if unaddressed and pushed down it becomes a crack foundation that you're trying to build a house on yeah absolutely and one of the hardest things like you said addressing it makes you a superhero um it's it's hard to do uh, we still no matter um how far we've come through um, mental health warriors like like yourself that have the the podcast and give everybody the platform to um, discuss it and, and bring it up openly. Um, it's still a taboo subject in many um, first responder communities and uh, veteran communities. Um, nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, we are having, and this isn't to be confused with the the one that was uh, several years ago with with all the the women and politics and everything, but we're having in the the first responder community uh, a Me Too um, movement that's that's starting to come out now. When I speak at conferences and I share my story, I have so many people come up to me afterwards and they say the whole Me Too. They thought they were all alone. And that they were the only ones, they were suffering in silence until they hear my story or uh, your story or, or Ben Vernon's story, um, something like that. And, and we need to get more open and have these tough, candid conversations and let others know that, hey, we're going to see a lot of stuff and we're going to hurt. It, this job isn't easy. It's a fun job. But it can be very painful at times. 
um, not necessarily physically, but mentally it can be painful. And it takes its toll on you. Like you said, usually about that 10-year mark is when people start having the, um, the effects of it. So we need to start implementing more programs um, where we get a good baseline of these members coming into our departments. And we, we need to do these checks, the, the whole um, the, the checkup from the neck up uh, on our members when they first start. And yearly, if not probably quarterly, all the way through to the end of their, what should hopefully be a healthy career. And um, I know we're going to have issues, we, the, the common stuff, where people have bad knees from crawling around as firefighters and backs, um, neck issues, things like that. But as far as the, the brain goes and taking care of that mental health, um, that, that's something that to me, I think it can be easily fixed, easily done. We just need to normalize it. We need to get to these departments and the, the higher ups, and we need to just sit around the table and discuss it and tell them this is how you should do it. This, 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 and this. It's going to cost X amount of money, but just like you, you were talking about with the, the sleep at the beginning of this, it's going to cost some money. But it's going to save you in the long term because the the health insurance claims and workers comp and all that, you're not going to have it. Um, nowhere near as much as you do right now if you just take care of those aspects of our men and women. Absolutely. Well, one thing that I've talked about recently, um, having worked for so many different departments because it took me the West Coast and then back to the East Coast, was realizing that we waste money even in the hiring process. Like I did three polygraphs of four departments, which anyone who researched polygraphs is complete smoke and mirrors bullshit. Did the Minnesota interview personality. I can never remember the bloody name of it, but anyway, it's also never ever meant to be a standalone test. Certainly not to decide if someone's worthy of being a firefighter or not. So those two right there, you could literally scrap. And now that gives you a budget. I'm just talking about hiring the new recruits. Take that money and now put it into four, six sessions with with a therapist, with a counselor, like you said. Now you open the door for people to talk about, you know, the life prior to your department and start dealing with that. You've normalized the mental health conversation at the front door and you've removed the barrier to entry to finding a, a counselor because initially this would be your person. I heard you talking on um I think it was a Beneath the Helmet podcast, um, which I love as well. Then have that and then open the door to other, you know, finding a counselor that works for you specifically, because I think that that's the danger of the single person is, is it not being the right fit. But normalizing at the front door saying, this is what it is to be a firefighter. We're going to do PT and we're going to do PT for your mind as well. That, I think, is how you change it. And you don't even come up with ex extra money. Like, we have it built in in these bullshit hiring processes. Do your written, do your physical, do a solid background check, and you'll be able to figure out if it's a good candidate or a bad candidate. Yeah, and it seems like uh, more and more, um, you touched on it earlier, the whole um, back in the day when, when you and I were trying to get in the fire service, it was we we're going up against a couple thousand people. And now it's probably a few hundred. So for whatever reason, we're struggling with the, the numbers to actually sit for the process. 
Um, we're, we're trying to beef those numbers up and get more people, get more candidates to apply. But to me, I think we're, to an extent, we're sugarcoating it. We're not letting people know exactly what they're going to see and what they're going to be exposed to. And I'm not telling you we need to scare them away, but we need to be open and honest with them instead of just, oh, you're only going to work 10 days a month and you're going to get to ride the fire truck and do this and do that. Okay, tell them that, but also tell them, tell them the other things that they're going to see and that they're going to be exposed to. And um, I, I just think we need that complete transparency on uh, the good and the bad. Absolutely. And even, even with the, the branding and like you said, the wording, yeah, this is the one thing. Oh, we work a dream schedule. I don't know anyone in the civilian space that works 56 hours a week and doesn't sleep every third day. So where we came up with that, I don't know. And I'm sure 100 years ago, petting the Dalmatian, playing cards, actually waiting for a fire. Yeah, it was probably a, a cake gig, but that's not 2023. So we don't work 10 days a month. We work three days crammed together into a 24-hour period. So it's three days on, one day off if you work a 24-48 or 30 days a month. Doesn't sound <laughs> so good now. So it wouldn't be a dream, you know, a luxury to go to a 24-72, for example. But I think this is, I agree with you 100%. We've done such a horrible job at branding ourselves. Why is there a fire engine on my medical call? It's 2023. You and I entered the fire service where EMS was already a part. I had to pass EMT school to become a firefighter. So the fact that 20 plus, 30 plus years ago, the public still asking that shows us that we, the fire service in general, need to do a much better job at educating the people and what we actually do. Yeah, exactly. So... You talked about first entering the volunteer fire service. So I know it's a very unique position compared to to career as far as living and working pretty much in the same place. So what were what were some of the acute, acute kind of career events that you ran during that time? And then let's also bring in the contrast of the volunteer world versus the career world that you entered after. So to volunteer at, at that time, in the city of Virginia Beach, they had a um, they had a full academy, so I had to go through an academy. But it was uh, since most people were working regular jobs, they did it like a few nights during the week, and then it was on the weekend. So I went through the academy, graduated, and like I said, I I was doing this to to give back to the community, but it also looked at it as getting my foot in the door, and it was a, a good start. So every chance I got. I was going up to the firehouse and volunteering. I was riding with the guys and I wasn't like what we call sometimes or used to call. I think it still happens today. I wasn't uh, a blister. Um, and that's the, they don't come out until the work's done. I was there doing the work and, and helping the the paid guys out and anything that they were, were doing. I was doing also, I just wanted to um, just soak up as much as I could about uh, that career and um, profession and everything. Even though I was a volunteer, I still wanted to master the skills as a, uh, a young man. And like I said, in, in hopes of, of getting hired. And it took me um, seven years because um, like you said, it was, it was thousands of people that were, were going for, uh, for these positions and, and everything. And um, I, I would run the calls with them. I would um, 
on weekends, I would work nights and or work a 24-hour shift and spend the night at the firehouse. And anything that they ran, I ran. And that was when I was first exposed to um, to death um, outside of, I guess, normal environments um, as a young man, as a, a volunteer in the fire service. Um, saw my first dead body of somebody that I didn't know and um, ran some, um, a few, I guess, troubling, um, horrific motor vehicle accidents. And looking back on that, we just, we never came back and we never talked about it. There was no um, schism or, or anything. We just got back to the firehouse and went off to doing whatever we were doing prior to the call coming out. And we never discussed any of it. And um, like I said, that happened for seven years until I got hired by um, the neighboring fire department. And um, it was a um, contrast in styles. The, the Virginia Beach um, fire department was, gosh, they're probably, it was an all paid department and they just had some volunteers that would come in there and just help supplement. And that's, that's where I was. So they still had the, the camaraderie. Those guys were always the same group of guys on each shift. So they, they got to, to sit around and still solve the world's problems around the kitchen table. But as a, a volunteer, um, I didn't always have that luxury. Uh, I would come back with them and we would bullshit or, or whatever. But like I said, they didn't talk about the, the horrifics. At least they didn't around me. And I would go home and wouldn't talk about anything. When I became career, um, we, and that was 2000. We did start, uh, we had in Chesapeake, we have a, um, at that point it was SISM. And during um, trying times and troubling calls, we would have the SISM team would uh, come to the firehouse afterwards or come to the scene if need be, and we would discuss things. Um, it was um, by some people a uh, mockery they would just call it the the need a hug club oh we got the need a hug club is coming out to the station to talk to us about this or that and um that was was awkward we would um i i did notice like i said with uh, chesapeake when i became career we would sit around the kitchen table we would talk vaguely about things but it most notably was that um, that dark sense of humor is what we would use to just air out our feelings, what we saw and, and everything like that. Um, I never once either volunteer or as career would talk about any of the stuff outside of those, uh, those walls of the fire station. Um, you would think as my life did progress and I, I got married in, um, 2003 you would think that um coming home you're gone for 24 hours at a time and you haven't seen your significant other 
that you would have a lot of stuff to talk about when you got home. But my normal response to my wife at the time, when she asked how my shift was, I was just always be like, oh, it was okay, or it was the norm. I didn't tell her that I had a um, baby pass away in my arms or somebody's daughter I couldn't save in a car accident or somebody's grandfather was in cardiac arrest. I, I never talked about any of that stuff and how it affected me. And it's, I did exactly what I, we talked about earlier with the, the childhood traumas and everything. I just kept suppressing everything down. And um, that's, that's never a good thing. And I, I didn't really see a whole lot of, um, uh, difference between the the guys that were career when I was a volunteer working with them and then moving to departments where it was all career with really no volunteers other than we would sit around and we had more of a dark sense of humor um, at that time. So could have been the the careers where I started as a volunteer. Those guys were just trying to, to shield and protect me a little bit or um, maybe they just didn't talk about anything at all. But once I became career, it was when that dark sense of humor started kind of coming out. Where I hear the difference between career and volunteer is more often than not, volunteers will live and work in the city that they're also volunteering in. So they'll have people they know a lot of times that they run on. They'll they'll be reminded on every street and corner that they live. I mean, if I drive to Orlando, there's, I mean, we could go all over the place and tell you, oh yeah, this, you know, this dead prostitute in a dumpster here, pedestrian versus taxi here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But where I live, I don't have any of that. I did volunteer when I was, I ran when I was in paramedic school with the local department and volunteered briefly. But um, apart from a few deaths that we had on the ambulance, even then they weren't close to where I live. I don't have that in Ocala, which is awesome. But I just went and visited Anaheim. Um, it was a couple of years ago now. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, that person was creamed there. And that guy's head split open there. So when you look back now, I mean, you live and work in different places now. What was that element for you while you were still volunteering in your own city? Uh, looking at it like that, very, very similar to what you just said. Um, and where I'm at now, it, it's so close. I still drive through there to to go places and everything. So I, I experience that as well currently as, as a career, even though I don't technically live in that city. But it's, like I said, it's so close and so neighboring. I still go through that city for different things to see friends or, or do different things. And um, it, it's between seven years as a volunteer here and then um, 23, going on 24 now, um, it's kind of tough no matter where I drive. Um, there's going to be memories that, that come up or, or stories that I could tell of things that happened at various intersections or houses or parts of um, the area. And um, that used to be tough. I would avoid certain, certain areas um, because I was um, for the longest time by certain calls haunted um, by experiences and, and things that happened on calls and I would always do my best, but sometimes it was inevitable and I could not um, 
avoid going by a certain area. And I would feel my anxiety, my pulse rate. I would start sweating and, and things like that. And that was just, that was really, really tough until I learned to um, get that help and navigate those waters through um, EMDR really helped me process some of the, the tougher calls and, and driving by certain areas and, and everything like that. So um, luckily things are, are just memories now and they don't affect me like they, they did in the past. I got them uh, refiled from, from right here to the, the back of the filing box. But um, kind of just another thing I'd like to point out about the volunteers. It was, this wasn't me. Um, but so many of our, our volunteers now, um, they don't always have the, the luxury and the, the more remote volunteers and, and everything. They'll have a pager. They could be at, at work. They could be at a ball game with uh, their children or, or whatever. That pager goes off. They have to drop what they're doing and go respond on a call. It could be a, a traumatic event, could be a cardiac arrest, fatality, whatever it may be. And once they're done running that call, they don't have the luxury like we do a lot of times. When we clear the scene, we're all on that rig together. And you know, a lot of times the, the processing does start on the rig. We start talking about it just over our headsets while we're driving back to the firehouse. And then we get back to the firehouse and um, maybe we'll wash the rig. And while we're out there scrubbing it or, or whatever, we'll just start bullshitting or making a few comments here and there about the call or we'll go to the kitchen table. Well, the volunteers, they clear up from the call. They don't have that. They don't have the, the camaraderie on the rig. They don't have the, the kitchen table. They can always go back to they're going back to their their kids ball game um their full-time job whatever it may be and that's that's a tough position for them to be in um and, and i think so many times uh, a lot of us don't think about that and a lot of people are just uneducated as to how big our volunteer system is in this country and that's that's the the main portion of the u.s fire service is volunteers yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, it blows me away when you hear there are volunteer organizations in suburban areas that obviously have a good tax base. I mean, to me, that's insanity. That should be a career department. I get it. If you're, you know, rural Idaho somewhere, of course, then that's a different dynamic completely. But I actually got a an interesting perspective having worked in, you know, the fire service for 14 years, transitioned out five years ago um, to do this, to try and be a voice from the outside. And I had a cardiac arrest on a flight and we, we hadn't taken off from London yet. I ended up and ironically, I, I just saw a fucking article about two weeks later. Lady has, I think she had more like chest pain. I think she went to arrest and 15 cardiologists were on the plane and they gave her some who knows what nitro, whatever it was. And, you know, she was fine. Well, no. On this flight, no one but me seemed to have any emergency medical experience whatsoever. There was a nurse who was a sweetheart, but I don't think she was an emergency nurse by any means. Um, so, you know, led this code and did CPR on this poor guy. And I've been, you know, talked about this a lot in the podcast. I'm I'm the Reaper as a medic. 
Like if you go into cardiac arrest, I have not had a single save as an EMT and or paramedic in my whole career. So just, you know, that's that's why I don't gamble. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it's it's obviously because these are hearts that don't want to come back. These are, you know, triple A's and brain bleeds and all, all the things. But um, work this code, you know, ended up working it with the local fire department and ultimately the paramedics from London. Finally, we began to switch off compressions. And, you know, and then I said, do you need me at the moment? It was super crowded back here now. Um, and they were like, no, no. So I went to the bathroom in the plane, washed the blood off my hands and take a seat. And it was jarring. And I and it, and it was funny. I did a video about and a couple of days after I got back because I was talking to the um, the flight attendants, too, because they were obviously shaken. Some of them went home and kudos to them for having the the courage to ask for help that way. And then the rest of them cleaned up and then we flew and they served everyone, which was so admirable. But I was um they ended up upgrading me so i ended up right by the by the cabin so i got to talk to all the all the stewards and stewardesses or, or flight attendants um but the whole point was it, it shook me for a couple of days and at first i'm like fuck you know did i did i lose my mojo and then i went i realized like oh this is what it's supposed to feel like when someone dies but when we're especially in career like literally we will you know we'll get back to the station the engine and you know if i'm on the rescue that day has already put all the EMS stuff that we use aside, we load up and then boom, off we go again. Sometimes I mean, I had my super bad last day at Orange County where three people died, three different calls. One guy was on fire, one was rotting in the woods, and the first one was a GI bleed cardiac arrest. And But you just clean your shit and then you go back into service. And so I think for, for the career people, we don't realize that when you know we're not feeling what we're supposed to feel because we can't but that again gets compartmentalized but conversely imagining that that's how the volunteers feel the moment they go back to their garage or their home or whatever it is that they do that's a lot not to process as well so both those two fields you know have challenges in two different ways and i was kind of you know gifted this this kind of insight into this one moment five years after taking the uniform off myself yeah, that's um, definitely true, and um, it, it's almost to the point where the, the the military, when people retire from the military, we do or they do a transitioning period, things to try and help them transition better into civilian life. And I know this is kind of going a little bit around or it's still tying into what you're talking about, but it's almost like we should start doing, um, we need to do more for us while we're, we're in there. But also when our members start getting to that point to transition out, do something like that and let them know. It's like, Hey, you're going to have the, the time on your hands when you do see things like this it's it's going to affect you because you're not in the job anymore. You you didn't arrive on that. And I know you and I, we, we talked about it briefly um, after that, that happened. But um, it's different when you show up to that person in cardiac arrest and you have at least three other partners or at least one other partner there with you, depending on what piece of equipment you arrive on first. But when you're there yourself, it's like, 
holy shit, and you don't have any of your equipment or anything like that, um, and, and people are looking at you. It's like, hey, what's James going to do? Come on, do something, James. You're like, shit, I'm by myself. I ain't got anything. But um, and then, like you said, when it's it's done, it's over. Those uh, those firefighters, they they took control of it. They don't need you anymore. You can step aside. And um, I mean, all I could do when I first heard that story from you, and, and then I reached out to you, was um, just feel for you, and just uh, imagine. I, I just imagine myself in in that spot, just getting away from everything, and just stepping aside from everybody and going into the the bathroom and throwing some water on my face. And I mean, first of all, cleaning up, like you said, we got bodily fluids on us and, and everything like that, but just kind of um, processing everything that you, you've just went through and um, how it's affecting you now, as opposed to five years prior. And those guys, they, they just, they don't get that. The, the guys that were on the plane with you um, that, that took over the, the first responders there. Um, just like you said, they're, uh, they'll restock right after that and the tones go off. They run the next one. It could be another cardiac arrest. Could be somebody had just fallen and hurt their ankle or something. We, we don't know, but they, they have very little time to process um, the, the volunteers. Um, the same thing. They, they don't have any time really to, to process because they're going back to their full-time job or their family or whatever else is going on in the community. And it's, it's tough. Absolutely. Well, I think the transition as well, as we were talking about the reasons that we get into the uniform, when we take that uniform off, the, the, the reverse happens. Now all those coping mechanisms, all that healthy environment that you've built is now stripped from you. So I think that's another reason why we need to do a better job transitioning our retirees or if someone gets hurt or if they're, as we'll get into, taken off for mental health or you know whatever it is, is that was your purpose. That was your tribe. That was your, obviously, as we talked about, your adrenaline, all the things. And now one day your ID doesn't work. And the bay doors go down and that's it. You're done. And that is so jarring for first responders, military especially. And even if you watch the documentary, like the weight of the weight of gold, these Olympians, they stand on that podium and then they're like, all right, that's it. You aged out for the next one. You know, here's your, here's your clap. You're on the front of a, you know, Wheaties box for a couple of weeks and then you're done, you know? So I think it, you know, we need to do a much better job because unlike the military as well, where they have the VA, there's no VA. And again, our military are blown away. There's no VA for first responders. It's like a year of Cobra for $1,000 a month and then go fuck yourself, basically, yeah. is what it is for most of us. So, you know, you, you've had everything stripped and now all the mental and physical trauma that you took out of the job, you're left with nothing to deal with it. No health insurance, no mental health resources. So that's another area I think we've got to do a much better job on top of the fact that statistically, if I had a brain bleed and my head exploded right in front of you now, I wouldn't be a firefighter statistic, even though my whole career is that's what I did because I ceased to exist on the spreadsheet of the fire service. So when you look at that, what is our real mental health death toll? What is our real cancer death toll, cardiac, et cetera, et cetera? It's probably, you know, 10 that's being conservative times the numbers that we publish every year yeah yeah exactly 
and um, getting back to the the difference between the the military and the first responder community, how um, we we pointed out they have the the VA, which isn't necessarily the the greatest right now, but at least it's it's a start. I mean, and it needs a lot of work. But there's also for them, which this could be a a good thing or a bad thing depends on how we want to look at it. So we already talked about alcohol, but they have the the VFW, the American Legion, um, different things like that. When they transition out, they can still go to and sit around and, and break bread or have a beer or whatever it may be with other like-minded people that are, are veterans. Um, our community, uh, when we retire, we we don't necessarily have that. We don't have VFW for firefighters or American Legion for firefighters or anything like that. Um, union halls, if you retire and you stay on as a, a alumni or whatever. Um, and that's not everywhere. Not every department has a, uh, has a local or even has their own union hall or, or whatever. So it's important that we um, build up a, uh, a retirement platform and camaraderie amongst our retirees and include them um, into this. My department does a, a pretty good job with that and it's it's building um, they're doing a, a lot better, keep improving it on a regular basis, but keeping the the volunteers or excuse me the uh, retirees involved um, with events that are going on, we have uh, quarterly breakfasts we'll host at different firehouses where all the retirees will come in and have breakfast. So they're among all of the uh, the new people. And uh, they just feel like they still belong within our department, within our community and, and everything. So um, that's pretty good. We just did uh, cancer screenings for all of the members of our department. Um, but we also opened it up and included all of our retirees that wanted to get screened as well. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. We, we, we just, for the longest time, um, the fire service or first responder communities, it just seemed like when members would retire and there was no real transition, like you said, they just swipe out clock out or whatever you want to call it for the last time. And they walk out that door and they're just stripped of their identity. And one other thing that we can, um, one of many things that we can start teaching and instilling, and this is Chris Moore's belief, um, not everybody might not agree with this, but um, the job can't define us. I know my job as, as a firefighter, it's, a, it's been a, my entire adult life. I've been a firefighter. Um, a big part of me, but that's all it is. It's a part of me. It doesn't define me. Um, it's not who Chris Moore is as a human being and as a person. When I walk away from here, uh, whenever that may be, um, will I miss it? Absolutely, I'm, I'm going to miss it. But um, there's still going to be other things that serve me. I'll find other ways that I can still serve the community because there are other ways and other things that I can do. Um, be it like um, you pointed out for yourself five years ago when when you um, transitioned out, you got into this. So you're you're still you're you're tied in with the first responder community. You are the first responder community, and you're giving back through this. 
there are lots of other ways. And that's where that whole um, transitioning platform that we should strive to try and establish within departments, just like the military has. They, they help their members try and find jobs out in the private sector. Um, let's try and find uh, the next host of uh, the biggest podcast for first responders ever. Um, let's try and find something like that or where first responders can help um, startups and, and peer support or mental health and wellness or whatever it, it may be. Um, this might not necessarily be one of the, the best things because when we talk about first responders, a lot of times people forget about our dispatchers and our communications. And to me, they, they are the, the first first responders. But um, if we have a, a police officer or a firefighter that is retiring, if they're eligible to, who else would be better than them at being a, a call taker or dispatcher. Um, they know all the lingo and uh, they have the street smarts and everything. Um, might not be the best for their mental health and wellness, but if it's something that they're they're stable and they're, they're willing and able to do, that might be a great transition for them. Go do that for a little while or to help out or to give back. Um, some kind of teaching programs, um, recruitment and retention. Who would be better unless you get the old salty, crusty guy who just hates everything about the where the fire service has gone to or whatever. But if you have the, the good, positive um, guys that had a very good and positive, productive career, um, transition them to like a, a recruitment and retention position. Let them be the ones who go out. We talked about we need uh, transparency and honesty when we um, – do the recruitments now, utilize them for that. They have the the proper skills and, and everything. But I, I'm really seeing now more and more where a lot of people are transitioning into, this is by their choice and they're doing. It's not like an organization that's helping with the transition, but getting more into the, the health and wellness aspect of it. They'll leave this career where they've been helping the community and they'll go back into a career where they are, helping other first responders and that's pretty impressive pretty pretty amazing to um to give to your your local community for so long and now you're you're transitioning out and you're able to give back to your your other family that you gave um 20 30 even 40 plus years of your life to yeah well i think that purpose is so important you know? and i think the one of the the areas again that we don't do a very good job is even ourselves understanding that the skill set that you develop being an American firefighter, for example, especially if you're doing the EMS as well, I mean, you're a damn Swiss army knife of skills. And so to then go, oh, I'm going to go teach in the academy then is very short-sighted. You know, yes, absolutely. If that's what you burning desire, you're that, you know, forceful entry guru, knock yourself out. But understand that the teamwork, the problem solving, the cool under stress, all these elements, you can apply in a thousand different ways. But if you can find something that also infuses giving, infuses service, because that's what led you into the uniform, I think that's, again, the kind of magic recipe for a, a healthy transition. You know, rest, recover, take some time off, do it on your terms. But how how can you serve in a different way, whether it's, you know, a local animal shelter or whether it's mentorship programs or something completely different, writing a book, whatever it is, 
that allows you to to take what you learned from the fire service and do something different because you know same as the cops that become security guards you know a police officer has the same kind of gamut of skills they could do so many things they're selling themselves short where they simply just put on a different uniform yeah and um there there's so many other things that we can do to give back like you said an animal shelter or whatever um i got a um a friend of mine up in ohio and he's actually utilizing his skill set and he's uh gotten on the city council and now he's running for an actual um state office now and i mean hell what better way to give back than to have a uh ally of the fire department be part of the uh, the city council that can help get assets for their fire department, help change the schedule to uh, give them the 72 hours off or, or whatever it may, may be. Somebody who understands it, understands the importance of the, the health and wellness of all the members. Um, that's a, a one additional way to make a change that my friend is doing up there. Um, and now he's trying to go for the state level as well. And um, I just think there's, there's so many ways that we can we can give back. Absolutely. Well, I want to lead you through to March 2022 and then, you know, the the post-traumatic growth, what the tools that you found that work. But you 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 know talked about your childhood. You had seven years in the volunteer fire service, then you enter the, the career. Obviously, you're accumulating traumatic experiences, you've got sleep deprivation, et cetera, et cetera. So walk me through now as you look back, this kind of downward spiral and where was that dark place you found yourself in March last year or two years ago now? Yeah. So um I like I, I touched on earlier, would never discuss anything. Um, being gone for 24 hours at a time, wouldn't discuss any calls or hurts or hangups, habits, anything with my family. I just pushed everything aside. Um, I don't know where it started, and I know I'm not the only one. This go goes back to the, the Me Too stuff. But um, some reason we think at times that we have an S on our chest. And we're the, the superhero and we got to protect our family and our loved ones. And by sharing any of the, the stuff that we see or that we expose ourselves to that it's going to hurt them. And boy, was I wrong with that. And um, 2017 is. Um, I ran it, it was uh, the beginning of of the year. It was um, January. Well, it was the first week of January. I don't want to give out a whole lot of specifics because people can kind of figure things out um, if I do that. And I don't want to violate any uh, laws or, or anything. But we had a, uh, a pediatric call and we we didn't uh, get this child back. Um, I thought I pushed that down, but um, like we said earlier, right after that that call, uh, cleaned up everything, and it was a busy shift. We ran several more. Well, that evening, I'm um, getting in my my bunk at the the firehouse. Um, I closed my eyes, and it was very soon after that was like that call that I ran early that morning was just like coming at me a hundred miles an hour. Um, that little boy's face and just everything, 
and then I would like open my eyes up and um, I, like you in the, the airplane, I went to the, the restroom at the firehouse and splashed water on my face and just looked at myself in the mirror and just trying to figure out what was going on and just kind of wrote it off, went back to bed and um, closed my eyes again. Well, now another call that happened 10 years earlier popped up into my head. And it was the same thing. Like it was just coming at me like that. that it was a call that I never thought twice about. Um, and I kept having these. I had, it was probably six other calls throughout my, at that point, I think I was at uh, 27 years in. And um, just these calls that I never thought twice about were just coming right back at me 100 miles an hour. Every time I closed my eyes that night, um, I got off shift the, the next morning and, and went home, didn't say anything to anybody. That night in my own bed, in my own surroundings, um, same thing happened. And this turned into a regular um, thing. It was just happening. I thought I was losing my mind and, and going crazy. Um, I had a leader in the department in um, 2017, um, four months later knew that something was going wrong uh, with me. He didn't know what, but reached out to me. Um, we had lunch together, talked to him, told him what was going on. He gave me some advice. I thought that I was good. Um, everything was was fine and dandy. I started talking to my, my family about issues that I was having. I started exploring my faith. Um, a year later in 2018, had another traumatic event. And it started spiraling me down. I started doing a lot of heavy drinking. Um, I was telling myself I wasn't doing it to get drunk. I was doing it to just suppress things and to help get myself to sleep. Um, I liken it to the uh, the old Nightmare on Elm Street movies where the, the kids were afraid to go to sleep because of the nightmares. That's where I was. Um, I I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was up, what was down, what was real, what was a dream. Finally, in 2018, I got a number of a therapist from one of my mentors in the, the department. And uh, it was not just a therapist, but a therapist that works with first responders. And um, getting the number and using it were uh, two different things. I sat on that number for a few more months before I finally made the phone call. And that's where, like we, we said earlier, um, it was like 20 or 30 seconds after I dialed that number and the person answered before I could get the, the words help me out of my mouth. And I finally got those out. Um, this guy said he could help me, started going to therapy, um, saw him for quite a while before he had to shut down his, his practice due to unforeseen circumstances. And he didn't refer me, just left me kind of high and dry. I had to find another therapist. Um, I finally, after that was probably about two months was able to find another therapist and um, started getting help with, with her and was doing really good. She introduced me to EMDR and I was doing very good with that reprocessing everything and started not having any issues. We started backing off from weekly to bi-weekly to once a month. And then um, she recommended to me, how I she wanted to know how I felt about going um, just on an as needed basis. 
And I agreed to that, which to me was the the dumbest thing that I've ever done. And I've done a lot of dumb shit in my life. As hard as it was to get into therapy and make that phone call and go to appointments, um, I was going to get myself right back into that spot where it was difficult to um, make that phone call again. So um, 2021, it was um, March of 2021, had a really bad call pediatric again most of my calls have always been pediatrics that that really bothered me the most and um i did remember to reach out to her then got some help processed everything and then just kind of we figured everything was good i was away from that as we were coming up on the the one year anniversary of that call in march of 22 um I just started getting more and more anxious. I started having flashbacks about that call with the, the anniversary of it coming up. And it was, um, it was very painful. I was drinking, started drinking a lot more then just to try and suppress those feelings and, and everything that was going on. Um, throughout all of, all of this, I was spending a lot of money that I didn't have and running up debt. Um, not proud of any of this stuff, but the, um, the extramarital issues, I was, um, looking for that quick release outside of my marriage. Long story short, I was on shift March 15th of 2022 and, um, just decided I didn't want to deal with this with life and these flashbacks and everything anymore. I was, was out of therapy. I was on an as needed basis. I didn't want to make that tough phone call again. I laid in my bunk that night in between calls. I had, um, I sent a lot of people text messages, nothing to <clears throat> tip my head or um, show my cards, but it's just my way of saying goodbye to friends and I wrote a letter um, I composed on my phone to my, my wife at the time that I wasn't going to, to do it at work. I, I thought about it, but I thought about how um, I, I knew regardless it was going to hurt my coworkers. But I didn't want to do it at the firehouse. So I was going to wait until the, the next morning. I was like, maybe, maybe we'll get a fire tonight or get something where something could happen tonight. But I don't know. But I just wanted to go home the next morning. My relief came in early. Um, normally, I'll sit around the, the station, have a cup of coffee with uh, my crew getting off and the crew coming in to shoot the shit with everybody for quite a while. But that morning, I gave a quick turnover to uh, the other officer coming in to relieve me. and. Um, I just walked past everybody, went out to my car, and uh, started heading home. And about less than a mile from my house, I um, pulled over <clears throat> and I uh, looked at my ring doorbell, just pulled that up to see if my wife or son were still there. And uh, once I saw they were gone, I continued home. And um, I said, I already had everything planned. I didn't want anything messy because I knew my son would be coming home from school later that day. And um, 
like I said, regardless, people are going to be traumatized. People that I love are going to be traumatized. I just wasn't thinking in the right mind, but I just wanted to look like dad went to sleep and he couldn't wake me up. So um, I had a, um, a bottle of um, it was probably close to about 50 Xanax. Um, that was the prescription. That was probably about 42 Xanax were, were still in this bottle. And I took the whole bottle and rinsed it down with a uh, fifth of bourbon. I sent one more text out and I sent the letter to my wife. And um, the I have a couple memories of I, I, I know I guess a neighbor got contacted and came over. Um, one of the members of the, my department came over. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up in the hospital um, connected to machines and um, looked to my side and my wife and my son were at my side at that moment. And it was then, and, and I know when we think things are so tough and, and so hard, we're just not thinking right. Um, that we there's no way out or, or we're going crazy or whatever it may be that we just got to end our life. But it was when I woke up and I saw them beside me that it, it truly struck me that um, I wasn't just ending my life. I wasn't stopping the pain. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to stop the pain and everything that I was feeling and experiencing and going through. Um. I was passing, I was stopping my life, but I was just passing the pain and the hurt and everything along to my wife and my son that were right there at my bedside in the hospital. I saw that on their face, um, the, the hurt and everything. Um, but I saw the love um, from both of them also. And I just, I told myself, never again. Never again. And um, I spent several days, close to a week, it was five days in the hospital before I was able to get released. And um, when I got out of the, the hospital, um, I had a lot of guilt and shame. A lot of people, uh, friends, wanted to come and visit me. And um, I, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to see people. Because um, like I said, I, I just felt so ashamed of what I did and so guilty. Um, but one of my, my good friends, he lives out in California. He's a uh, retired police officer. He told me about a, a program that he had been through. And that's where um, I learned about jake clark and save a warrior and it's for for veterans that have um post-traumatic stress and or suicidal um, ideations and for first responders as well and he told me he said man all you got to do you you just go to their website and you just put your information in and somebody will reach out to you and they'll have a phone call. It's just a conversation and they'll determine if it's um, the right program for you. And it's a nonprofit. If you get accepted, they're out in Ohio. They originally started out in uh, Malibu, California. 
but he's like, uh, if you get accepted, all you have to do is get there. He said, they, they take care of the, the rest. So I did that, um, submitted all my information online. Somebody contacted me fairly quickly and had a, um, amazing, but tough conversation. And, um, I was just open and honest for probably the first time ever with anything. And, um, I realized that's, that's where it at, uh, where it's at. If we can't be open and honest about things that we're feeling and struggling with and, and dealing with, then, um, we're not going to get anything out of it. You get out of things, what you put into it. And, um, they accepted me into the program and came up with a date. It was the um, the last days of April and the first couple of days of May that I got accepted, um, attended Save a Warrior in uh, Hillsboro, Ohio. So I flew into Cincinnati. They picked me up, and it was myself and um, seven other first responders from all across the country at that point were um, were there. And I met Jake Clark, the, the founder of uh, Save a Warrior, Adam Carr, um, another, uh, another great man. Everybody that I've met affiliated with this program has just been top-notch, just amazing. Um, their only skin in the game is that they want to help others. And um, I learned about ACEs. This was a 72-hour uh, a program. They literally have a clock that they put in the room. When it starts, they, it's set at 72 hours, and they hit the button, and it starts the countdown from 72 hours. And they asked all of us, um, who has doubts? And um, I wasn't being an asshole or anything like that, just being where I want it to be for, for now on the rest of my life. I wanted to be open and honest and candid. I raised my hand and I, I told them and they wanted to know why. And I was like, I've been in therapy off and on for um, five years and it hasn't done a whole lot for me. I just had a suicide attempt a month ago and you think you're going to be able to help me in 72 hours and make a difference. And they said that was fair, but they just um, wanted me to, Promise them that I would lean in and play the game, be open, be honest. And I was like, you got it, because I, I want it to be fixed. And I did that. And brother, at the end of that 72 hours, all of the the, the crying and the, uh, the just the emotions and, and everything that I went through during that time period with these seven other first responders, it it fixed me. And it's not just those 72 hours and you're done. It's every day of my life after that. There's things that, that I'm doing, and it's a community. Um, that I believe they just started today. I think it was class 224 or cohort number 224 that they've done. And it's just, it's amazing the community that we have of alumni that have been through that. Um, me and those seven guys, we still keep in touch every day to this day. And we've been out um, I, over a year and a half now. And um, we talk about our fire academies and police academies and all that and the bonds that we make when we go through the, uh, 
police or fire academy, how strong those are. The bond I made with these seven guys in 72 hours is a stronger bond than anybody I went through the academy with. And those are some pretty strong bonds that I have with those guys too. But um, just everything we opened up, it was a, a safe place for us and they're safe men that we were able to share things with and experiences and, and talk about the childhood experiences and everything else that we've seen and we dealt with. And um, a lot of it is just about being in the present and getting unstuck when, when things get you stuck and everything. And there's so many analogies and um, things that, that we like to utilize and, and they, they utilized in that. But um, when you, you kind of sit back and you, you hear a lot of this stuff, it's just like, holy shit. And when you start looking at it, they like, like we like to use uh, the, the term our, our saw goggles and uh, the, these glasses, the way we see life now and look at things in a different perspective. And when you slow things down and you're not worried about things that happened in the past, because that shit's already done. It's already over with. That's just our memories playing tricks with us or fucking with us or whatever you want to want to call it. And the, the future is something it's our imagination, stuff that's never even happened yet. And we don't even know if it's going to happen. Nobody can predict the future or anything like that. So it's all about just being in the present and doing more things um, internally for our mental health. Uh, they introduced me to uh, warrior meditation and they, they want us to do um, at least one 20 minute meditation a day, if not two. And um, to this day, I can count on <laughs> one finger um, in a year and a half now, how many times I've missed a day of meditation. Usually I get at least um, my two meditations in a day, but if not, it's always at least one, except for one time I, I've missed it. And um, I didn't think that meditation was for me when they first started talking about it there during the program. And I was like, I can't do that shit. I was like, that's what uh, we had a couple guys that were uh, there from California. I was like, that's for these California assholes here, the, <laughs> the tree huggers and granola people and, and all that. Um, I'm just, as a first responder, we're, we're always on guard and hypervigilant and on point. I was like, I can't get comfortable enough to just get myself in a, a state to clear my mind and just free it of everything. And Adam Carr told me, he said, man, he goes, there is no such thing as a bad meditation. He goes, just keep at it. He's like, usually he said it could take up to two weeks before you, you finally start loosening up enough. He's like, just 20 minutes once a day, preferably twice. And he goes, if you just sit there and you're still tense the whole time, oh, well. He goes, that was still your body doing nothing for 20 minutes. So it literally took me close to the, the two weeks. I think it was about uh, 10 days. And on that, that day, I just I just fell into it. My whole body just kind of was able to sit down and just, just relax and get into it. And uh, I'm still to that point today at the conference in Ohio. Um, they actually had meditation in the mornings leading up to the conference. And um, it was really, really cool to see so many people get introduced to it 
and to uh, to go on. But my my mental health and wellness, just from doing that, I, I reflect on if I'm doing one in the evening, I'll reflect on uh, things that have happened throughout the day. And then even in the, the morning when I do those, I kind of think about the past day, anything that I feel is unresolved or issues like that. Um, I, I've done um, the, the, the self-help, the, the meditation when I get back from a troubling call. I'll just uh, take myself aside and um, I'll just process the call in my head, just think about it. And then I'll, I'll just kind of turn the lights down and I'll do my, my meditation for 20 minutes and just kind of, it helps me just clear the call and just process it. And uh, dude, I'm telling you, I am living just from, I mean, there's a lot of other things that, that we do. Like I said, every day it's, it's something you've got to do the work, but um, I'm living my best life ever right now. Um, I know you and I had discussed it. I almost made it my entire uh, career as a firefighter without getting a divorce. That is um, one of the unfortunate things about my um, 2022 was all of that. It was just too much to to really save my marriage. And that's not a knock on my ex-wife or anything like that. Um, she was an angel throughout everything. Um, we knew that I had issues and, and stuff going on. And once I started talking about it, she had always um, stood by my side and was always there for me, always encouraged me, helped me, got me help that I needed. Anything that I could have ever asked for, she was always there. But um, when I talked about the internal drugstore and trying to get those quick dopamine releases, um, one of those releases for me was the extramarital stuff. And that was the thing that got to be too much when that, that came to light for the marriage. And it was just um, I mean, I know it was a hard thing to accept either way, but it was a trust thing was was the main thing. She, she'd she be able to move on past stuff, but she would never have been able to move on past the, the whole trust. And we know trust, um, if you don't have trust in any kind of relationship, be it a work relationship or personal relationship or whatever, you're kind of screwed from the get-go. So once we lost that, we, we realized that we needed to uh, just kind of um, – dissolve the, the relationship and our marriage and for what it is it we left on as good of terms as could be and like i said i'll never speak bad of her because she has a, a great understanding of um, being a first responder spouse and how it affects the whole family dynamic um since then i've met a uh, another beautiful woman um inside and out She's an alumni of Save a Warrior also, so we have a lot in common and the whole accountability thing um, that I have with my um, cohort brothers that I went through. Her and I, we we hold each other to the same standards as well, and um, we recognize things and call each other out and call bullshit out or whatever. And it's like, hey, I noticed you weren't meditating um, the other day. What's up with that? And um, we just put a foot in each other's ass and be sure that we're on the, the straight and narrow. But the, the main thing, like I said, dude, it's just the, the whole open and honest transparency 
with everything. Um, there is nothing at all that is off limits. There's nothing I'm afraid to talk about except for the possibility of marriage in the future. <laughs> uh, so that, that, that gets kind of scary um, thinking or, or talking about that. But um, all seriousness, there's, there's nothing. And I think when you can live clear and free like that, I just think it's a it's a good place to to be. It's a good place to start, and um, I love it. I, I share that with so many people. I know at the conference in Ohio, since that's where uh, Sable Warrior is, I know there was a lot of uh, Sable Warrior alumni that was there. I got to connect with a, a lot of them. Jim is actually Sable Warrior alumni as well, and. Um, it's it's just a uh, brother and sisterhood, and we we do the whole. They say it, it, it takes a tribe to to help people and all that. Well, that's that's our tribe is the the Sable Warrior, and we spread it on to um, other first responders and organizations and our, our military and stuff like that. And um, I'm just forever grateful and thankful to uh to that organization and jay clark for him starting it out of his trunk in california years ago with just um he just wanted to save one person that's it just save one is one of the um um the mantras there and um shit he saved a lot more than one he saved this one he came back for me that's that's another thing he said we came back for you and i text jake He's on a, a group text with me and my cohort brothers, and um, I, I thank him often. And when we come up on our anniversary, um, I'll, I'll let him know that also. I still living in Virginia. It's kind of hard to get back to Ohio, but I want to go out there and, and volunteer and, and help with a future cohort as well. Beautiful. Well, I mean, firstly, thank you for sharing that because this is the this is the mental health conversation that needs to happen. It's not the doom and gloom oh it's so sad you know i i'll live with it for the rest of my life i don't think that's the reality of 99% of these stories is it's that there's this post traumatic growth and i think that we talk about stigma i think we're past the stigma i think most of us are talking about it. even as you said if some people don't accept it it's out there now whether you like it or not but what we need to infuse now is hope like you know the solutions the giant toolbox that is available from EMDR and Save a Warrior to psychedelics and equine therapy and everything in between. I want to just circle back to your realization, though, when you woke up, because I think this is an important part that you hardly ever hear when it comes to suicide. And you don't, it's not on the posters, not on most of the conversations. When a lot of us were thinking about suicide, let's say 20 years ago, when I say thinking, you know, the, the, about other people struggling with it. You're like, oh, how cowardly! How could they? You know, um, you know. You think about your kids, all these things, and then you actually hear hundreds of conversations just like this of people that have been there, and there's people you know, that survived the attempt, like you, like um, uh, Kevin Hines who jumped off the the Golden Gate Bridge. I've had you know a few people, Emma Benoit who shot her, shot herself and survived. Um, immediately, there's regret. You know, and then they're kind of snapped out of what led them there before. And I think this shame and this judgment is coming from a somewhat healthy mind. How could they? And yet what I'm re realizing now is that there's that wanting the suffering to stop, 
which of course is is a real part. But almost all of them also reported a feeling of burdensome, which basically suggests that the brain through trauma had become miswired. So it was not a healthy brain anymore. So you cannot understand how that person's thinking because they're not thinking the way that they were supposed to think. It's been miswired, misprogrammed. And so when you tell someone who's in crisis, think about your kids, think about your wife, they were like, I am. I'm the problem. That's why I'm going to go and do this thing. You know, so it's actually an act of courage in a way, not cowardice. So in that state, or when you look back now, was there an element of you truly in your heart believing that the world would be better off without you? Um, that was that whole thought of that was for me, it was it was there, but it was minimal. Um mine like i said i just i couldn't get that shit to stop um i was just like i said i literally and i know the term crazy isn't a, a good word to use for mental health or whatever but i i literally thought that that something had snapped in my head with all this stuff that was just coming on these these flashbacks um being right back in that moment and everything um but i i would think about the the bad things that i was doing and how it was affecting my family and i did think about being a burden to them and and the hurt because at that point it was um leading right up to that is when the whole thing with extramarital um issues came to light and I knew that I had betrayed um, somebody who's been by my side that entire time and was doing things to help me and truly wanted me to get better and to succeed and get the help that I needed. And I betrayed that. So, yeah, I did um, have those those thoughts and, and everything. And how could my son look up to me um, when I did what I did to his mother and um, they, they would talk about at times, um, even before I, I started getting help or knowing what was going on, um, they would come home walking on eggshells because they didn't know what dad or what husband, um, was going to be there. Was I going to be the happy go lucky guy or was I going to be the asshole who, um, didn't get any sleep that night or had a bad call or, or whatever. So, yeah, I, I was worried about um, how I was a burden and I was no no good to them and that they would be better off. Um, I would say it tongue in cheek quite a bit, but I um, I meant it when I, I would make comments to my wife that um, she'd be better off without me. And I, like I said, I would just play it off as I'm joking. And um, I was like, oh, you'll miss me until you get that first check, that insurance check or whatever. I would just make stupid little remarks like that. But my psyche, that was truly how I felt. And um, I, I knew if I was saying that, like, without saying it in a joking manner, that 
um, the authorities or whatever would, would come and get me or, or whatnot. But so I would, I would make comments like that in a joking way, but it was, it was all seriousness. I didn't, did feel like I was um, a big part of the problem. Like I said, I knew um, the debt was in my name. So I hoped that when I took care of myself or offed myself, that it would take care of that. And like insurance checks would come in just everything. So, but like I said, I, I realized that was, that wasn't me thinking properly. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's what we need to understand is when people are in crisis, they, you know, it's no different than, you know, I, I have a failed skydive and I shatter my legs and my, you know, my pelvis. That's you know, an, you know, reaction to an acute event. Now it could be cumulative. Maybe, you know, I'm a freaking coal miner somewhere and I'm crouched over with weight, you know, and it took me 10 years to get to that point, but it's the, it's a malfunction by that point. But so when we hear this this conversation about suicide and how could they and everything, I mean, sadly, there's there's a perfect example of of this. We had a law enforcement couple in in Florida um, later last year. the The boyfriend, the father, took his own life first, and I think it was not even a week before the the girlfriend had the mother, and they left behind an, an infant. Now, how could they? You know, well, exactly. A healthy mind wouldn't do that, especially you know the the mother when she's left, you know, the only parent now. But when you look at it a completely different way, it's it's a miswired mind. Now all of a sudden you realize, oh, we need to be compassionate. We can't add more guilt and shame to someone who's struggling. Now we're just going to speed up the the process of them taking their own lives. We need to try and interact and be like, look, I know you're hurting. You know, you probably feel like a burden. You are not a burden, and that 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 to me is a is one of the red flags. Of course, the suffering is the suffering, and that's a big part of it. But this, you know, think of your family, don't be a coward, don't be so, you know, all this stuff that's so fucking wrong. And now, seven years from me doing this, I'm realizing that we have to completely reframe and ultimately just put it back into that kindness and compassion element that we really, we need to find, refine in all areas of life, but with this as well. When our men and women are hurting, they're not thinking with a clear mind and that's why sleep deprivation is so fucking dangerous for mental health because you're destroying the mind then you throw in some alcohol which numbs our self-preservation reflexes and now you've got the perfect storm for a suicide yeah exactly and i was all, all of the above on on that the sleep deprivation the alcohol and um just the, the mind not being wired right in that moment and so yeah it just it was the perfect recipe for disaster perfect storm like you said so but we need to um need to look at at the big picture and it, it's not always about having anything to say to somebody i know we talk about right and wrong things to to say but sometimes you you have that person that's struggling one of the best things we can do is just, I mean, obviously, if they're struggling and we know they want to take their, their life or whatever, we need to, to act on that. But sometimes somebody that's just struggling, the best thing we could do is just that, that active listening and empathy. And a lot of times people, they just need their feelings. They, they need to know that they're honestly and openly being heard 
and that their feelings are valid. They're entitled to hurt and struggle and everything. Everybody does. But um, sometimes just, just listening to somebody, we don't have to have the answers. No, we don't, we don't always have the answers, but us as, as first responders, a lot of times we're some of the worst for that when it comes to reaching out and helping somebody, because we in our profession are to an extent control freaks. Think about it. What, when, when somebody dials 911, something is out of control in their life and they're calling us, it's our job to get there and take control of it and fix it. We're used to that. For 24 hours at a time, we're going away from our families and we're fixing shit all of the time. We are pros at fixing other people's shit. But we can't fix our own. We, we choose, for whatever reason, we choose not to. Um, we, we, we don't want to talk to our partner um, at the firehouse or, or whatever. Um about all that to, to get things fixed if we're, we're struggling or we're hurting. But we'll go and we'll talk to uh, Joe Citizen, who we don't even know, to fix their problem because we, we can control that. We can control our stuff, too, um, by just reaching out. We can control who we, we want and um, how we want things to, to, to go to the best of our ability. I know th- there is still a lot of stuff that's out of our, our hands and out of our control, but just by making that, um, that gesture and, and reaching out, the act of listening, being empathetic and um, not judgmental. I mean, we, we're, we're pretty cutthroat at times within our, our community. And um, it's like, we, we jokingly say that there first, there is the, the telegraph and there's telefriend and there's uh, telephone and telefirefighter. So we can't have these uh, these forms of communication. The telefirefighter, I, I tell uh, James that, hey, man, I'm hurting. I'm thinking about um, uh, hurting myself or whatever. And I talk to you in confidence. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from one of the other stations. Like, hey, man, uh, what, you OK? And James just told me. It's like, no, it's not supposed to be like that. We got to have the confidentiality and and everything so but yeah it's there's there's just so much in um the the whole wiring thing and stuff like that is um that's the the god's honest truth nobody i don't think anybody nobody in their right mind is going to want to take their life nobody it goes against our literal biology we're supposed to reproduce and we're supposed to protect our offspring yeah. So, I mean, obviously we know that we get, we got something going on there. And um, so let's, let's figure out what that underlying issue is and let's, let's resolve it. Let's not let that person self-medicate with uh, the alcohol or whatever it may be. Let's get that, that ball rolling and get that definitive care and normalize it. And um, let's fix this shit. Absolutely. I want to hit one more area before we we close out, um, which is an important thing. After the suicide attempt, talk to me about, and this isn't, you know, uh, talking negatively about your department, because again, doing the best with what they know, but talk to me about the position you were put in 
And if that was helpful tribally, or if it became a challenge tribally for you personally. Yeah. And uh, thanks for uh, kind of setting the stage there about it not being negative about my department. And um, <laughs> let me give my disclaimer now. I should have gave this at the beginning. All views are the views of Chris Moore and do not reflect or um, anything positive or negative on my department. They're all my views. Um, so it was the whole, we don't know, we don't know. Uh, since this, um, I'm going to touch base on it, but I, I did start doing some, some research after the fact. And a lot of departments, we have things in place, and this is nationwide and actually extends across the border into Canada. I've, I've talked to people. If a member completes suicide, we have um, policies, directives, guidelines in place of how to handle it as a department. We have things for line of duty deaths, whatever you want to. And I know that's a, a discussion for another day, whether or not a, a suicide of a member should be a line of duty death or not. Um, but we don't have, I, I have yet to find a department with a policy in place for what you do or how you treat a member who has a suicide attempt. So there is, excuse me, NFPA 1582 has a recommendation or a, a guideline because NFPA's guidelines that you can keep a member out for up to a year with a, um, a suicide attempt. So with no policy in place, my department never having experienced um, anything like this, chose to follow the NFPA 1582, um, kept me offline for just about a year, but they, um, they, they did give me, they gave me a desk job. And how we talked about earlier that the job does not define me. Well, I found out in that moment, I felt like it really did. I'm, I'm a grunt. I, I want to go and I want to do my 24 hour shifts. I want to get on the, the, the rig and ride the calls and do the work and, and everything. I want station life. And I just felt like my identity was stripped from me when I got put on a, uh, a desk job. And uh, it, it really hurt a lot of people that I thought that I was really close to um, had very little communication um, with, with a lot of people. Um, some I never heard from and I still to this day hadn't heard um, anything from people that worked for me, worked with me. Um, I had relationships from other um, uh, parts within my department and um it's just I felt like I was shunned. Like I told you with my um, friends, I had that whole, um, I felt like I was a, um, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed of everything that I did. And I was made, let me see, let me rephrase that. 
I felt even more so through my department um, because of all that. However, I, looking back on it now, um, I have, um, during all of that, wrote some policy. It's nothing has been implemented within my organization yet. But I, I think each person, I don't think there should be a, a cookie cutter policy um, for anything, yet alone something as serious as this. I think we should treat people as human beings and everybody's different. Uh, it should be a case by case basis. Um, I, I jumped through, um, I don't want to say I jumped through hoops. That's what I was about to say. I, I went through a lot of steps and processes. And um, each time I thought that, okay, I, I went through this step. I just got to get through this next step. And that's the goal line. Well, then the goal line, just when I'm about to extend and, and score, it gets moved on me. And um, it, it felt like that kept happen, happening um, on numerous times. I, I went through to different doctors that they required and, and things like that. And looking at medical records, um, the doctors pretty much cleared me. They, they thought that it would be good to um, get back to um, that, that camaraderie that, that we had in the firehouse. But getting back to this, long story short, I have been working with some departments on making policies to help their members because I feel like it's not a matter, unfortunately, it's not a matter of when or if this is going to happen. It's a matter of when it might happen within another organization. Um, I have, by doing that, been able to reflect more on how my department handled the situation and the issue. And are there things they, they could have done better? Absolutely. Um, but I think they did a pretty damn good job looking back at it now. I didn't understand it or like it that much um, in the, the very beginning. But the whole, like I said, they, they didn't know what they didn't know. Um, a lot of times people don't know how to talk to somebody who's tried to take their life. And I didn't necessarily need somebody to come and talk about that experience. People that I thought were, I was closer with or, or friends or whatever. It's like, hell, just come over to my house. Let's sit down and watch a ball game or something. We don't have to discuss it. If it comes up, it comes up. Just be my friend. Be there for me. It's the whole act of listening and uh, empathy. And, um, but the, the going to the, the desk job, that, that was the right thing. Looking at hindsight right now. Um, you got to do what's best for the member who had the event, but also we got to think about the team as a whole. And if I think a little bit of me, and I, I think there's a lot of give and take on, on both sides, a little bit of me was kind of, um, selfish where, I was like, you know what, if I want to go back and doctors say I can go back and I can go back, but those people there don't want me back because of what I did. I was just thinking in my head, I was like, you know what, fuck them. And um, their feelings and their emotions shouldn't affect me and my livelihood. And that's where the, the give and take has to be. And that was me being selfish. 
because my event and what I did, even though I wasn't, my brain wasn't wired right, I wasn't in my right mind at that time, um, it affected the whole team. And um, I wasn't looking at it like that. Um, and, and that's why, like I said, policies now for getting people back, I think it, it should be a case by case, but you involve the, the, the doctors you involve the family, and we have to be very, um, very mindful of HIPAA, what gets released out there to certain people and individuals and stuff like that. We also know we have the um, the gossip tree in the, the fire service, the he said, she said, and everything. But I think you need to include in a comfortable fashion for all, as many people, you need to build that circle and try and include people in there that are um, trusted, respected, and um, have the best interest of that individual in mind. Even though the best interest was for me, there still has to be a little bit of interest, like I said, left for the, the entire team as well. And that's one thing I let people know is now of all times, the We'll say the world. The world is watching. People are watching now how things like this are being handled, how they're going to be handled in the future. What are we going to do? If they see, it's like, you know what? Captain Moore said in, in the end, they ended up handling his stuff better. They did a good job. Um, they're going to be more um, accepting and willing to reach out and get help. If they completely shit on their member and they don't do what's right for that member and let him come back um, accordingly when ready, people are watching that too. And somebody that might have been on the fence about reaching out and getting help might not reach out for that help because they might say, you know what, the department just shit on him because of his mental health episode or episode is probably not even a good word, his, his, his mental health. Why am I going to do it? They might shit on me too. So a lot of people still to this day are having these conversations like you and I are having because like cancer really became the, the hot topic um, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, whatever people were talking about that. Well, the hot topic now is mental health. They're talking about it because it's the hot topic. But there's a, a big difference between Saturday night and Sunday morning, partying and then going to church the next day. There's a big difference also between talking the talk and walking the walk. When one of your members goes through a crisis like this and has an event, are you actually going to be there? And are you going to walk the walk that you've been talking with your member? Are you going to take care of them? Are you going to do the right thing? But more importantly, we, we shouldn't even be at that point. Let's do it. Let's be proactive. Let's not be reactive and just walk the walk with them after the fact. Let's walk the walk with them as a whole from the, the get-go. Like, I mean, right back to what we talked about at the very beginning of careers. We're, we're already saving departments money by changing the, the process of things and, and stuff like that. So 
let's let's do that that mental health background check in the beginning and then start doing these quarterly checks all throughout the duration of their career there there's a lot of checks and balances that we can set up by being proactive where we don't even get to this point but still let's implement a plan for how we will handle it if something does slip by and um happens absolutely yeah, I've always said you know, the fire department is, well, the fire service is great at burying their own, but terribly, terrible at stopping them dying in the first place. And I think that's that's it. You know, we we need to stop having these pomp and circumstance funerals, and maybe take that energy and focus it on how do we stop so many happening. We can't set and stop them all. And even just to to touch on is suicide, uh, line of duty death, if cardiac arrest or stroke during a shift is then absolutely suicide is as well because you know again it's it's partly what happened before it's you know partly what's happening outside of work hours but you know obviously being exposed to what we do is is job related so you know and so how do we stop that and so many of these line of duty deaths happening through suicide and overdose and the other mental health related deaths well again it's all about the pro the uh, proactive side as well so I'm sure people listening would love to learn more about you, would love to reach out. I know that you like to put your number out there as well. So what are the best avenues to contact you if people want to? And I give everybody, I, I'm on Facebook, Chris Moore. I'm easy to find out there. I'm not on any of the other stuff. I'm just on the old man social media. They took away my uh, MySpace. So I got Facebook, <laughs> I haven't gotten into the Instagram and um, Twitter or X or whatever it is now, but just on Facebook is my only social media, but I blast it out there. My personal cell phone number. Um, people have seen me speak at uh, conferences. Also, I put my number out there at conferences. Um, it's uh, 757-536-3373. It's not a, a business number or anything like that. That is my personal cell phone number. You can text me. You can call me. People thought I was crazy when I started doing this almost three years ago. And they're like, you're going to get all sorts of uh, terrible phone calls or whatever. And um, it's like, hey, what, what can be worse? I'm already getting, like everybody else, the calls about my car's extended warranty and shit like that. It's like somebody calls me. It was the whole uh, Jake Clark thing. And this was even before I knew Jake. I was like, if just one person calls me and can use some help or whatever, and I can point them in the right direction or just do the act of listening, then I'm making a difference. So um, I put that out there everywhere I go. I try and plaster my number. And um, I am just shy of 2,000 people have reached out to me to this day. Um, I, I give my disclaimer that I am not a clinician, uh, not a therapist. I am, <laughs> I sure as hell am not a doctor. But what I am, I'm a, a fellow first responder that has post-traumatic stress, a suicide attempt. I have lived experiences and I can relate. And a lot of people can relate to me. And sometimes, like I said, that's all we, we need. And um, I point people in the right direction. Um, I listen to people. Um, sometimes they, they just want to ask me about peer support or behavioral health. Um, or, or call and get me to come in to speak at their department or whatever. So anything that I can help with, that's the the best way to reach me. Like I said, find me on Facebook or uh, you got my personal number right now. 
call me. I uh, I do the do buddy checks out of those almost like I said two thousand people that have reached out to me. I'll randomly go through that, and um, of course I at the end of our conversation I ask them as like, hey can I reach out to you can we stay in touch and I haven't had anybody yet tell me no, so I'll randomly just reach out weekly and just send out some messages hey just thinking of you you matter or how you doing today just little things like that and that's to me that that makes a huge difference and that's what people have told me when just get a, a random text they might be having a, a shitty day and then just get a random text from somebody they've never met before other than seeing me on podcast or at a conference or social media and this guy cares about me so that's me man beautiful well again thank you for that and one thing that i'm i'm hoping that we'll see down the road is almost like the israeli military system where their philosophy is that you protect your buddy that's how they that's the, that's the kind of principle i believe in in that particular military and i think that's what needs to happen is it rather than ultimately down the road rather than chris moore or dustin hawkins or brendan mcdonald fielding hundreds of calls that we actually wrap our around our arms around you know our nearest and dearest so that way we're all taking care of our circle now you know it's because one of us is going to have a great day one of us is going to have a shit day it's just the way it works so uh you know i hope that not only you putting your phone call out and thank you so much for that your phone number but also that we could be reminded to just check in on on our loved ones whether it's outside of the the uniform or inside the uniform because checking in on 10 people that you adore is much easier than a handful of people checking in on 2000. So that's a kind of call to action for everyone listening as well. Right on, man. Right on. Well, Chris, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for over two and a half hours and it's been an amazing conversation. As you said, you not only have the, the firefighter career path, but you have the lived experience. And, you know, I always thank people that have been courageously vulnerable because this is what we need. I mean, you're a, you know, a firefighter and, and we met in person. You're a big lad too, as we'd say in, in England. So back 20 years ago, you'd be quote unquote, the last person that we thought would be struggling, but this is what we need is, is the, you know, the, the alpha professions. And I mean that with compassion, um, to, to stand up and talk about their struggles, because that's how you debunk the myth that boys don't cry, rub some dirt in it. You know, this bullshit that we were raised on when we were younger, that we're all human beings. And no matter whether you're a Navy SEAL or you work in a cake shop, you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous and so vulnerable today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me, James. I really appreciate it. So keep doing what you're doing, man. You are making a world of difference to a lot of people. So I appreciate you, uh, your friendship and your platform and everything, man. So keep it up, brother. Mm -hmm.